The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There are moments in life where something uh, that you know good and well, and something you know to be true that you maybe never once have doubted, all of a sudden becomes fresh and new all over again. Uh, There are times when something maybe you've been taught your whole life or something you've never debated will all of a sudden get big and boom right in front of your face in such a way that it's like you're hearing this old truth that's so elementary all over again for the very first time. Uh, When I was first married to Amy, uh, my wife, I never once after that moment questioned whether or not what happened when we walked down the aisle and, or when she walked down the aisle, we said, I do. I've never once questioned since that moment, did that work? You know, I've never once questioned whether or not we were actually married and all of that happened. And I've always just known that over the last several years, but there have been moments in life where some circumstance will bring me to a place where I am keenly aware, almost as if this, this truth that I know hits me all over again, whoa, she's my wife. Whoa, I am married to her. We are together till death do we part for the better. There are times when, with our little boy Hudson, in the last few years of his life, I've never once doubted, all right, is this my boy? Is this my son? Is it not? I've never had that debate in my mind, but there are these little moments in parenting when I'm keenly aware, whoa, I am responsible for this child. He is my son. And maybe you've had some sort of experience like that, of something that you know good and well, and maybe you've been taught for a while, but there are just times when these little basic elementary truths just all of a sudden become fresh again. Well, as we're studying through Jonah, we're going to get to a moment in Jonah chapter 2 where something in Jonah's life that he's been taught his entire life, something his grandparents and parents and his community would have drilled into him that was so basic and elementary that he's heard it all of his life, it's all of a sudden going to become big again. It's going to hit him all over like this wave crashing down on him, and this simple truth is going to really set the tone for the entire book. And my hope and prayer for us uh, in this room who are followers of Jesus is that as we look at this, uh, this information that's not going to be new, I'll just be honest. Oftentimes we look for new information or the latest thing that can help us, but what we often need is ancient truth washed over us afresh. And so my prayer is that we encounter this simple truth that's at the heart of our faith, that you would be renewed and restored and you would have a sense of wonder about the simple things. And then for those of you who are here and you're not Christians, maybe someone invited you and reluctantly or excitedly you decided to come and you find yourself here and you're trying to interpret what all of this means and why we sing and why we open up the Bible and read. And my hope and prayer for you is that as we look at this very basic fundamental truth at the heart of the Christian faith, that maybe for the first time you would discover and realize the incredible grace and kindness and love that God has for you in the simplest way. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. But before we do that, I want to recap what's happened in chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. So last week, if you were here with us, we were introduced to Jonah. 
He's a prophet sent from God to this city called Nineveh. And Nineveh, of course, is the capital city of the ancient empire of Assyria. And the Assyrians were this very powerful, dominant force in that region at that time period. And they were God's people's ancient enemies. They were not nice people. They hated the nation of Israel. They were at war against them and eventually overtook them. And God tells Jonah, a prophet from Israel, to go to Nineveh, the capital city of their ancient enemies. And he says, go and bring my message of salvation. Go call them to repentance, Jonah. And Jonah says, no. Jonah says, no, I'm not doing that. In fact, not only does Jonah say, no, I'm not going to Tarshish all the way to the east. Jonah then decides, uh, no, I'm going to go over to, uh, I'm not going to go to Nineveh all the way in the west. I'm going to go to Tarshish as far, as far west as possible. I just confused you and me, okay? He goes in the opposite direction, to put it simply. God says, go here. Jonah goes there, okay? And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. And so he gets on this boat. He's on his way to Tarshish at the westernmost point of the known world. And he's on his way with these sailors. And meanwhile, God sends this really clear message to Jonah that when you play hide and seek with God and you run from him, God is better at seeking than you are at hiding. And so he shows up And he sends this storm as this boat's on its way to Tarshish, and the storm rages and swirls and threatens to break the boat into pieces, and these sailors are calling out to their gods that they believe in, and their gods aren't listening. The storm is still raging, and Jonah says, hey, it's it's my fault. And he says, you got to throw me into the sea. And so these sailors reluctantly throw Jonah into the sea, and the storm ceases the moment Jonah's body touches the water. And these sailors freak out says they are exceedingly afraid. They fear the Lord immediately and they offer sacrifices and make vows to the God of Jonah, to the God of Israel. And in this moment, these sailors, after just a few seconds ago, praying to their false gods who can't hear them, now they've committed themselves to Yahweh, the God of Israel, in this miraculous turn of events. And so Jonah, by being delivered over, left for dead, brings about the salvation of these sailors. Now, Jonah, right here in verse 16, is essentially, he's left for dead, he's in the middle of the ocean, and last week, Pastor Roby left us with a rather interesting cliffhanger. Some of you know what happens next, others of you may not, Uh, but what happens next, I guarantee you, this is just bizarre, okay? It's just bizarre, let's be real. Look what happens next, verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That is a bizarre turn of events. And uh, if you grew up in church, maybe this story kind of loses its shock value. But that is a shocking turn of events, that the way that this story moves forward is that God appoints a large fish, maybe a whale, to come and swallow up Jonah. Now, if you're someone who's newer to Christianity and newer to church and studying the Bible, you probably feel the shock of this. And maybe you even have this objection like, see, this this is where my trouble is with the Bible. Sometimes it feels like a kid's story that you might teach a child, but I'm a grown-up now. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I I can make my own decisions. I have rational thought, and so I have trouble with this. In fact, here's a depiction from a kid's story of this moment. So there he is, you know, he's Jonah in the whale, right? And we can have this childlike view of of a story like this. And here's what I want to lay before you. It was a word that was in bold when we read it, verse 17. The word is appointed. The Lord appointed, God appointed. He arranged these circumstances. So here's the claim. 
that there is a God who created the world. And if there's a God who's big enough and strong enough and powerful enough and wise enough to create the world, including you, with the mental capacity to reason and to question whether or not he's real, then that means there is a God who is big enough to sustain the life of one of his creatures inside one of his other creatures. This is a claim of something where God is intervening and he sends a large fish to swallow up Jonah. This is something out of the norm. It's miraculous. And in a moment, we're going to see why it's absolutely essential to the story that God delivers Jonah through a bizarre, miraculous means. So look with me now what happens next in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's the place of the dead, the place beyond the grave. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you, Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah, right here in the belly of this whale, his life sustained for three days and three nights, has this time of prayer. And in the entire book, this is the first time that Jonah prays. And he cries out to God from the belly of this fish and expresses his deep faith in the Lord in the midst of this awful situation, this self-inflicted situation. Now, I want to just quickly highlight a couple of the themes in his prayer that really helps. So if you're writing notes, go ahead and write these down. In his prayer, a couple of things that are important keys. The first thing is Jonah describes his suffering as the spark to his faith. He describes his suffering as the spark to his faith. Look again at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, I called out, called out to the Lord out of my, what's the next word? Distress. And out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Then in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Maybe you can relate to this, how in seasons of suffering, there's something about going through something traumatic and difficult that helps pull back the curtain and reveal to us how much we need God, how much we desperately need him. Jonah here in the midst of his suffering calls out to the Lord. The next theme here is that God was the source of everything happening to Jonah. Jonah's confessing that God was behind all of this. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, For you, praying to God, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, in chapter 1, it's clear. Sailors, likely from Tarshish, are the ones that pushed Jonah out. They hurled him into the sea. But Jonah, with the time to reflect that's given when you're inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights in solitude, is able to look back on the events that have just transpired, and he has concluded, you know what, it was the hands of sailors from Tarshish who dumped me into the sea, but it was God's doing. This was God's purpose. 
This was God sending me into the depths and being in control over this experience. And so not only was God the one that he attributes as responsible for bringing him to the place of near death, the place of Sheol, but he also says, God is the one who raised me up. Look again at verse 7, or excuse me, uh, verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's a description of Sheol with its gates. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. But the Lord brought his life up. And so Jonah sees God in control of everything happening. And the third thing, the third one, is that this is a prayer of thanks for God saving him. Now, if, if you were in the belly of a fish and God did something miraculous and you lived three days and three nights, and you had a prayer time. I'm sure there's a lot of time for prayer in that situation. But one of the things you might expect to be found in this prayer is, God, get me out of here, right? Like, hello, save me from this situation. But Jonah, here in this prayer, maybe he probably prayed a bunch of other things, and maybe that was something he did pray. But right here, what makes its way into this is Jonah, in the belly of the fish, is actually thanking God that he has delivered him. Look at verse nine. Verse nine, it says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, Jonah doesn't see this fish that has swallowed him up as a situation where he needs to ask God to deliver him from it. He sees this whale of a situation as God's deliverance of him from drowning. So he calls out to the Lord and he has this future-oriented thanksgiving. He says, Lord, what I vowed I will pay, I will offer sacrifices to you. With a heart of thanksgiving, I come to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now look at what happens next. Verse 10. It says, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. So right here, Jonah gets delivered from death. Out of the belly of Sheol, he has vomited onto dry land. And for the first time in three days, Jonah's lungs take in fresh air. It probably smelled so sweet to him. And then it says, what has to be the most comforting verse in the entire book, it says in chapter three, verse one, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And God went back to his runaway, unlikely prophet and said, all right, Jonah, I'm going to do something amazing and I'm going to give you another opportunity to be a part of it. And he goes to Jonah, invites him with a second chance to go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah has learned his lesson. Jonah goes and he goes to Nineveh, this great city, and preaching what's described here as a one-sentence sermon that's not all that engaging. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that one sentence sermon, maybe the shortest sermon in human history, brings an entire city to its knees. And the entire city believes from the least to the greatest. They repent and they start saying, all right, let's seek the Lord of Israel. Let's seek Yahweh, the God of their ancient enemies. 
And Jonah has to be floored. And he goes and he proclaims this message and you'll just have to come back next week to see what happens after that, okay? Something interesting is gonna happen once again, something unexpected. See, Jonah, though he's learned some lessons, he hasn't learned all of them. And so Jonah right here, he preaches this message and the entire city is transformed. Now, there's a, uh, there's a very famous work of literature. It's called The Tale of Two Cities that even if you've never read it, it's by Dickens, even if you've never read it, chances are you know something about the first line, okay? So this is the audience participation section. So even if you're watching online, just call back to your computer and just speak to it, okay? No worries, no judgment. Um, here's, here's the first line of A Tale of Two Cities. Ready? Here we go. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Very good. It was the age of wisdom, and it was the... Nobody knows the second part of it. Okay, no worries. <laughs> The age of foolishness. Okay, it was the age of wisdom and the age of foolishness. Anyways, this, uh, this very famous work of literature begins with this device where the author from the very beginning gives you one statement that summarizes the entire book. That statement summarizes what the entire book is all about, that it was the best of times and simultaneously it was the worst of times, that it was an age of wisdom and an age of foolishness. And sometimes they'll be in a movie or in a book, or in a play. There'll be a moment or a, a statement that's written where that one statement captures the meaning of the entire story. It captures the significance of everything that's taking place. And what I would argue is that statement for the book of Jonah happens right in the middle of the book at the very end of Jonah's prayer. Jonah concludes, after being in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, crying out to the Lord, quoting from various psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, quoting from different, Psalm 42 and 68 and 3. Right at the very end, Jonah makes a statement that captures the entire book. And the statement is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a simple truth Jonah had been taught since childhood. It's a simple truth throughout the entire book of psalms that he quoted so effortlessly while he was in the belly of the whale. Salvation belongs to the Lord the Lord, a simple truth that hits Jonah and crashes over him like he's hearing it for the first time all over again. Now, this idea that salvation belongs to the Lord, we're not just describing life or death, we're describing eternity. That our standing before a perfect God, our standing before a God who is holy and us as humans who are unholy and imperfect, our standing with God that God is the sole author of our salvation, that we are utterly dependent on him. It is his doing, not ours. Uh, just this past week, I was sitting at a Starbucks and working on this message, and uh, I was looking at my computer, typing something, and then one of the things I often do just subconsciously is I'll look up to think, and I looked up to think, and these two young ladies started walking towards me holding their sugar drinks, right? Um, so they're, they're there, and they've got them. And they start walking, I'm looking, I look back down at my computer, the thing I did notice, and this is a key detail, remember this, the thing I did notice is they were wearing Western high school cheerleading jackets, okay? So these are two sugar coffee drinking Western high school cheerleaders, okay? So they walk by, anyways, I go back to typing, and then the next thing I know is I hear from behind me, like in this general vicinity, but it had some distance to it, so I wasn't quite sure with my, you know, spatial recognition, uh, there was behind me this loud, guttural, non-human sounding roar behind me. And it was so voluminous, okay? It was so 
loud and strong that I, I jolted. I, I had one of those moments like in a scary movie where you freak out. Okay, so I, I freaked out, I jolted, and I start to look back. And, and I, at this point, I realize, okay, lions don't live in Starbucks. This must have been somebody had something to eat and they just belched a big one, like unbelievable. So I turned back around fully expecting to see some six foot five, 350 pound, like offensive lineman for the Miami Dolphins uh, who are going to beat the Raiders. But I fully expect to see that I turn around and what do I see but a Western high school cheerleader with her hands delicately pressed on her lips and this look of sheer shame and shock. And it was one of those moments where I did not have the body discipline to control my body language. And so my, draw just, my jaw just dropped to the floor. And I looked totally disturbed. And this poor girl, we exchanged what had to be like a one and a half second stare of awkwardness where I thought, that came from you? And she was like, I can't believe that just happened. And then they scurry off into the bathroom. And I'll tell you, like, if it wasn't for the fact that her little hand gave it away, if it wasn't for that fact, I would have assumed, man, there's something back there, like in the back of Starbucks. Somebody brought their dog that's massive or something and roared. But that little hand gave away. She is somehow the source of that roar. And sure enough, I go back to typing on my computer. I'm like, man, that was weird. And then they, 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 they start walking back towards the front of the store. I'm like, do not look. Stay down, Justin. Don't look. And, and I just let them giggle away. They giggle off. And uh, I thought to myself, Lord, you just gave me a sermon illustration. Because this is the part in the story where somehow what happened at Starbucks with two girls from Western High School who happened to be cheerleaders has something to do with the book of Jonah. And so here's what I want to say. Throughout Jonah, all throughout, in every chapter, at every turn, God's message of salvation is booming every single time. God is saying, I am the one who saves. I am the one who saves. Salvation rings out throughout the message of Jonah. And the way in which God brings about salvation to the sailors, to Jonah himself, and to the city of Nineveh, it's as if God is going out of his way to make it undeniably clear, salvation comes from me. It's as if God is saying, I am the source and I don't want you to have any doubts where this salvation comes from. So I am going to work in such a way that it is evident salvation belongs to the Lord, period. No asterisks, no footnote, not this person also helped out a little bit on the side, just God. So Jonah says it explicitly in verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. But in every episode, so last week, these sailors Think about it. They are literally in the midst of calling out to their idols. This storm is raging and they're calling out to false gods that don't exist to save them. And God says, you know what? I'm going to reveal myself to these sailors while they're doing something I detest. <laughs> calling out to gods that don't exist. And so God sends his prophet to them and by delivering his prophet over to death, Left for dead in the seas, God brings salvation, not just physically, but spiritually, eternally to these sailors, to where they offer sacrifices to the Lord and make vows to him. It says they fear the Lord exceedingly. And so in the midst of their idolatry, God says, you know what, I'm going to bring salvation to these sailors. These sailors from the far reaches of the earth, the far west of the known world where Jonah was trying to run from the Lord, I'm bringing salvation to them. And then Jonah is left in the sea, 
drowning. And there's a number of ways that this story could play out. Like the cliffhanger that we left off with last week could have been, and when the seas calmed, the sailors turned back around and they threw a rope and picked Jonah back up, right? Or it could have been that they just so happened to be near some other boat and Jonah was waving his hands and he could float just long enough so that they could see him and they brought him safely aboard. But no, God with an eye for the extravagant says, I'm sending a whale to swallow Jonah and maintain and preserve his life for three days and three nights. And I want Jonah to experience my salvation in such a way that he knows it could come from nowhere else. And then Jonah is delivered onto dry ground and we think about the people of Nineveh, people who were a part of a nation that was notoriously greedy, vicious, violent, power-hungry, the ancient enemies of God's people, and God says, I am going to bring salvation to the capital city of the enemies of my people. I'm going to bring transformation in that great city, and I'm going to do it by sending probably the worst prophet in all the Old Testament. Probably sending the one that we relate to probably easiest. Sending Jonah, who says no to God, who eventually goes and delivers a very brief, unengaging sermon 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. And everybody's like, Lord, help us, right? Everybody's changed through the most unlikely way, through a very simple message from a not-so-qualified preacher, and an entire city is turned upside down. At every turn, God will not allow us to take any glory from the fact that salvation comes from him. And Jonah, in the belly of the fish realizes something he's been taught for a long time and it just smacks him over the head. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The simple truth becomes fresh again and something about that, that salvation belongs to the Lord, if you're like me, something about that makes me feel uncomfortable. That salvation belongs to the Lord, period. Uh, No added notes to that. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Something about that makes me feel uncomfortable because I know this to be true about my, myself. I, I know it's not true about you. But I know for me, I like taking credit for things. Uh, I like uh, having my name written next to things or something about that. that kinda, I know you don't have that issue. But I, I, love, I love being the one who helps make something happen. And when it comes to the single most important thing about Justin... The single thing that will matter a thousand years from now, when everything else matters very little, the most important thing about me, I had nothing to do with. But it was purely a gracious gift from a loving God. And salvation belongs to him, and I have simply received. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that makes clear then that Jonah is not the hero of the story. Jonah points us to the hero of the story. He points us to a prophet greater than Jonah. I want to read a statement to you that summarizes the book of Jonah. We'll also put it on the screen for you to read along. So follow along in your mind as I read this. I want you to think, this is the message of Jonah. Ready? God's messenger is cast into Sheol, the place of the dead, and through his encounter with death brings about the salvation of people from distant nations who were far from God. But then three days later, this messenger of God is miraculously delivered from death and arises to spread the message of God's salvation to distant lands. Now that 
story. That message of Jonah is a familiar story. You see, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus made this explicit, he says. In Matthew 12, verses 40 through 41, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The one that Jonah points us to is the one who, in an even greater way than Jonah, was cast into death so that undeserving people like us can receive life, so that we can be delivered from the enemy we could never conquer. And then three days after Jesus' encounter with death, three days after being buried in the heart of the earth, Jesus rises up from the grave, proclaiming the message of salvation to people from distant lands. And here we are, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away from all of these things taking place and this message of salvation booming forth because of something that God did that can't be taken credit for by any of us. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news that God has made a way for us, that God has made a way for people like the sailors from Tarshish who are worshiping idols and seeking after things other than God, people like Jonah who constantly disobey God, people like the Ninevites who are self-centered and power-hungry and greedy, that God has brought salvation and forgiveness so that people like us can know him and be made new. This is the message of Jonah and the message of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And there are moments in life when this simple truth There are moments when this simple truth hits us in a fresh new way. We're almost as if we're encountering it all over again for the first time. And so I want to offer to you two um, quick things that this helps us with. Just practically speaking, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what this does for you and for me. Number one, this is a source of our sanctification. This is a source of our sanctification. Go ahead and write that down. Circle that word sanctification here. That word simply means this. It means to be made holy. It's the process, is, the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus. Not just in our behaviors, not just in us stopping doing bad things and doing more of good things, but in our inward desires, where God makes our heart more like his heart. And this message that salvation belongs to the Lord helps make it clear. It makes it clear that the universe is not about us. Uh, I was in our, our parenting group uh, so we go to a group on Sundays, uh, and we're part of that group, and uh, we're talking about parenting. And I have my notes here. I just covered this page in notes. But I want to share one thing that's just so helpful, that there is one at the center of the universe, and it's our job as parents to teach our kids that it's not them. And every child is born believing the heresy that life is all about them. And that truth, that all of us are born with that, includes in us into adulthood, And so many of the difficulties and challenges that we have with anger, the difficulties we have in relationships, the division that's sown is oftentimes because we believe life is all about us. And they should be bending towards our desires and our needs and so much of that conflict. It stems from this self-centeredness. And so what in the world could humble us and begin to peel back those layers of self-centeredness and place in us a desire to serve others and be God-centered? What could do that more than 
the most important thing about us being something that we absolutely could do nothing to contribute towards, that salvation belongs to the Lord. The humility that comes in knowing that God would look at us and he would not just love us, but like us and delight, to use the Bible's word, in us in such a way that he would provide salvation for imperfect runaways, imperfect idolaters, self-centered people like us, that he would bestow his salvation. That is a humbling thing that helps us realize we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And notice how in chapter three, after Jonah concludes triumphantly, salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice in chapter three, now he's ready to say yes and obey God. See, our realization that salvation belongs to the Lord, that's what drives our obedience to God. Something we say around here quite often is that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we've been rescued and we've never recovered, that we've been rescued by Jesus and we haven't gotten over it, and that fuels and drive, drives our obedience. Not because we want to obey so that God will be happy with us or will bless us in the future. No, we obey because he's already blessed us and accepted us in the most extravagant way. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now I'm ready to live that out. And he goes and he preaches his message in Nineveh. The second thing that this does for us practically is it gives us confidence for our mission. That salvation belongs to the Lord gives us great confidence for our mission. Think about it. If salvation belonged to the sailors, if it was on their shoulders to save themselves, they would have kept calling out to their idols till they were blue in the face. They would have kept calling out to their gods, and their gods can't hear them. And they would have sank, and their ship torn apart and died in the sea. If salvation was on Jonah, if salvation belonged to Jonah, then Jonah would be at the bottom of the sea, gone. He'd have been dead. If salvation was on the Ninevites, who lived in that notoriously wicked city, that city of prominence and power, if it was on them, there would have been no transformation. You see, if salvation belongs to the Lord, that means that there is nobody who's too far gone. That means that there's no sin that's so bad that God's like, oh, I can't, this is a situation far beyond me. And I, I know some of us in this room, I know people in particular, for example, like your children who have wandered away from their faith and it seems like they are far from God prayed with you for your children and it's so easy to lose heart and think man they're just too far they're, they're too far gone what's the point anymore and you know if salvation was on their shoulders if it was up to them or if it was up to us as the ones who deliver the message then we would be right in giving up but if salvation belongs to the Lord, then that means there's no one too far gone, that it's never too late, that we can, as long as there is a heart that's beating, continue praying and asking the one who can do something about it to seek and save that which is lost. Tuesday of this week, we had in our prayer initiative a focused time of prayer that this would be a season in our church where we see people putting their faith in Jesus in just a harvest in a wave that we would see countless people who don't know Jesus encountering this message of his salvation and his love for them. And so what I want to lay before you this week is to take what you did on Tuesday and put some specificity and discipline to it. 
to put some names down, to say, Lord, beyond just sending a harvest, Lord, would you send me to this person? Lord, would you use me in this person's life? Would you bring salvation to my coworker, to my child? Lord, and, and find a way, build a system in your life where consistently, week in and week out, you are praying for those people. A question that's been posed to me before that's been a source of conviction and a source of encouragement is that what if God was to perform such a supernatural work in your life that he answered every single one of your prayers from the past month? And if he did that, how many new faces would be added into his kingdom? How many people would be going into heaven with you because we've been faithful, believing that God, who is the author of salvation, can do something about our friend, our children, our coworker, our family member, believing salvation belongs to the Lord. So what if, what if an entire church was hit afresh with this simple truth that maybe you've been taught from childhood, but what if it just washed over us in a brand new way that salvation truly belongs to the Lord, that it's not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, that it's not us trying to drum up God to do something and try and force some sort of movement, but us joining in what God is already doing and he's including us in the process. What if we dared to believe? Salvation is from the Lord and therefore with confidence I can pray boldly before this God who created the world, created the heavens, who can save idolaters and terrible prophets and wicked cities. What if we prayed boldly, God, would you send us to our great city and would you use us believing that salvation belongs to you to see this city transformed by the gospel in our generation? What if we dared to believe salvation belongs to the Lord? Now, before we close, we're going to sing a song here in a moment. I want to point your attention back to verse 9. In verse 9, it says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Then can you read the next word? Salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, when God told Mary and Joseph what they were to name Jesus, he told them, I want you to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the very name Jesus, it comes from a Hebrew word, Yeshua. And that word means salvation. It's the word that's right here in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That God wanted to leave no doubt in our minds where salvation is coming from, where ultimate deliverance is found. And so he says, Mary and Joseph, name him Yeshua to show them that there is salvation in his very name. And so there are people who are right here within the sound of my voice in this room, watching online, watching this at some point. There are people who you've been prayed for, and you maybe don't even know it. But someone has prayed for you that God who can bring salvation to anyone and everyone, regardless of our past, regardless of our failures, that God would bring salvation to you and that you would realize for the first time salvation belongs to him and he has shown his love and mercy by sending his son Jesus Christ to come and rescue you. And I want to invite you right now, wherever you find yourself, to put your trust in this Jesus whose name means salvation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with us and then we'll pray. Right there where you are, if that's you, 
and you realize you need the salvation that God offers through Jesus, then right there where you are, would you just say to God in your heart, just say, God, today I declare that I need you. God, I turn from living my life my own way. Lord, I turn from the idols that I look to to try and satisfy me. And I turn to you, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you died for me, paying for my sins, and that you rose from the grave, defeating death itself after three days. Now help me to follow you with my life, Jesus. I receive your great salvation. Thank you for doing everything for me. Now, Lord, I pray for us. I pray for every individual in this room that this truth, that salvation belongs to you, would it just wash over us afresh. May we marvel in awe and become more and more like you as we're humbled at the fact that you have shown such incredible love for us. And may we go out with confidence that it's not on us, that it's you, that you're the author of salvation and you intend to use us. May it be so in our great city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.